0: Good morning, Crossroads. Uh, As JD said, my name is Lance. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to be here with you today as we conclude this very short series, uh, Enemies of the Heart. Uh, now this series is based on a book by the same name from Pastor Andy Stanley. Uh, and I got to tell you, I would definitely recommend this book to anyone struggling with the issues that we've talked about in this series. Uh, much of what I'm going to share today comes right out of the book. But in the book, Andy is able to go deeper and into a little bit more detail than I have the time to do in the service today. Uh, and Dwayne mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating. We made a mistake, okay, uh, with this series. We tried to cram too much content into too little time, and it feels like we're just kind of scratching the surface of some very deep and important issues. Uh, and so right out of the gate, I want to apologize. Uh, I'm sorry for our error. Uh, and as they say, hindsight is 2020. Uh, But with that said, I'm going to do my best to cover today's topics well. And by God's grace, we can hopefully still make some headway uh, and begin to take a step or two towards healing in these important areas of our lives. Sarai? Sarai. Perfect. Thank you. So uh, let's start with a quick review from last week. For those of us who are here, just a little refresher. For those of us who weren't, just so we're all on the same page, okay? Uh, As we look at any of these four emotions that we're covering in this series, the first thing we have to do is admit that I have spiritual heart disease. I have spiritual heart disease, okay? I have to first acknowledge that my heart isn't right. We have to come to the understanding that our hearts are out of sync with the rhythm they were created to maintain. Now, there are four things that disrupt our hearts and throw us out of sync. These life-blocking agents become lodged in our hearts. They poison our relationships, our faith, and our character. Uh, And each of these four emotions create their own unique debt-to-debtor dynamic that can cause an imbalance in our relationships and our lives. And so the four enemies of our hearts are greed, which says I owe me, jealousy, which says God owes me, And Pastor Dwayne talked about both of those last week. And if you missed that message, can I encourage you to listen to that on our website? Uh, You can also listen to it on our mobile app. Uh, i got to tell you, it was very powerful. Make sure you go and listen to that. Uh, But today, we're going to be focusing on the two remaining enemies of our hearts, which are anger, which says you owe me, and guilt, which says I owe you. I want to start by looking at guilt. Guilt says, I owe you. Guilt is the result of us having done something that we perceive is wrong. Um, And every wrong we do can be restated as an act of theft. If I steal from you, I owe you. I mean, we've even adopted specific terminology for resolving our guilt, right? We say, I owe you an apology. Now, why do we owe people an apology? Because our hearts tell us that we took something, that we are now debtors in some fashion. And consequently, the only way to make things right is to pay up. Even if our only available currency is the words, I'm sorry, still we feel obligated to pay something. See, the debt created by guilt can be devastating. When we're in a position of being in debt to another person, I think we take one of two approaches, right? Uh, for, A, we either do what we, whatever we can to, and check out these words, make it up to the other person, right? Like make up for what's absent, make up for what's been taken away. Or B, we avoid the person we owe, right? I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Uh, you rarely see the guy who owes you 50 bucks, right? Like he just never seems to come around. If you want him, you've got to go find him. See, that's the power of debt. We don't seek out opportunities to expose ourselves to the people we owe. When people are in a relational IOU position brought about by poor choices, they look for any excuse to be absent rather than face those that they owe. Even people who may care deeply can't overcome the sense of shame and indebtedness that their actions have brought about. And the offended person pays the price. Now, while having an IOU mentality can lead to some pretty bad relational decisions, it's the decisions that you can't make that cost the most. Proverbs 22 7 says that the borrower is slave to the lender. In other words, authority belongs to those who are owed, not those who owe. And nothing less than paying that debt will relieve a guilty heart of its burden of guilt. We may try to work it off, serve it off, give it off, even pray it off, but no amount of good deeds or community service or charitable giving or church attendance can relieve the guilt. It's a debt. And it must be paid or canceled in order for a guilty heart to experience any relief. So guilt says, I owe you. Anger, on the other hand, says you owe me. We get angry when we do not get what we want. And Dwayne mentioned this last week, but it's a pretty important idea. And one that maybe you don't agree with right away. So I want to say it again. Anger is the result of not getting something we want, and what we want may also include what we believe we deserve. I want you to think about a time when you were really angry. Isn't it true that the entire situation could have been reduced to this simple idea? You wanted something, and you didn't get it. In other words, you didn't get what you were convinced you deserved. Or to say it another way, Somebody owed you. Show me an angry person, and I will show you a hurt person. I guarantee you that person is hurt because something has been taken. Somebody owes them something. If nothing else, an apology. We all know folks whose anger could be verbalized in any one of the following ways. You took my reputation. You stole my family. You took the best years of my life. You stole my marriage. You robbed me of my purity. You owe me a raise. You owe me a second chance. You owe me affection. Friends, the root of our anger is in the perception that something has been taken. Something is owed you. And again, this debt to debtor has been established. And like guilt, anger alienates us from other people. More times than we'd care to admit, the shrapnel of our anger pierces those close to us. Loved ones who are innocent and clueless as to what caused us to detonate in their presence. Just ask my wife and son. Uh, They were sitting in the front last night, just kind of going, yo. (laughs) See, anger is a real problem for me. Uh, It's an issue I've spent considerable time addressing in my life, in prayer and in counseling. Uh, And trust me when I say that I still have a lot more work to do. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not violent. I don't throw things or hit people or punch holes in walls or anything like that. I yell. Uh, And it doesn't help that my voice is naturally pretty loud to start off with. So when I get really angry and start yelling, it scares people. Mostly because of my size and my volume. And what makes me angry? I've shared this before, it is no secret that I get like Hulk-level angry when driving in traffic in the Bay Area, which in this area is freaking always, okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, slow service at a restaurant is another one, that's a surefire way to get me in the red. Uh, and if there are any other parents in the room, especially of teenagers, you know that our kids are well adept at pushing every single button we have, right? Uh, Inefficiency is another one, drives me absolutely crazy, five minutes at the DMV is enough to make me want to commit murder, anyone, doesn't even matter who. But what really fires me up, when I feel disrespected, undervalued, ignored, taken advantage of, or undermined, zero to a hundred like that. And I have rationalized my anger just about every way I possibly can over the years. Well, you know what they say about us redheads. We're all a little fiery. (laughs) And just as an aside, uh, in my experience, that is almost always true, okay? Uh, Like, just a little PSA for you, friends. Uh, Redhead equals hot temper, all right? Uh, God made the hair red on purpose. It's a warning. The more you know. (laughs) Here's another one I've used, right? It's not so much that I'm an angry person, I'm just really passionate. Also true, I am a passionate person. Or here's another one. I grew up in a house where yelling was normal, so it's just the way I was raised. And there's truth in that. But whether it's one of these anecdotal reasons or one of a couple dozen others that I've used to try to explain away my anger, friends, the truth is that not one of them is good enough for me to stay the same. There are a number of different factors as to why anger is an issue for me, but none of them justify me continuing to allow anger to control my life and damage my relationships. Something happened a couple weeks ago, which caused me to realize that maybe I'm not quite as far down this road as I'd like to think I am. Uh, It was here on a Sunday afternoon just before service, Uh, And I'm in my office, and it is brought to my attention that we need to make a change to one of the elements in our service. And it was a significant change. We had to reduce some time from an element that myself and several other coworkers had spent weeks of work on. And in that moment, I felt myself starting to get really angry, like unreasonably angry. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, I was able to focus on the right things, communicate clearly, which meant not saying much in that moment, uh, and keep it together. But it brought to light a bigger issue for me. I had some unresolved anger to deal with. See, the reason that I got so angry so quickly over something that really wasn't that big of a deal was that it stirred up a memory of something else from many years ago at another church. I was serving there in a similar role, uh, planning, preparing, creating elements for the weekend services. Uh, And my team and I, in collaboration with several other artists, had worked for weeks to uh, create a package, a video and a song for an upcoming service. We would communicated about it well. We talked and checked in with uh, the person speaking that week many times along the way, and they had voiced their approval. Uh, on the morning of the service, we're going through rehearsal. The video we made plays and finishes, and the band goes into the song that connected to it. And the person giving the message stands up, starts waving their arms and yelling at the band to stop, which they do. He approaches me, and stone-faced says, I can't teach out of that. We've got to cut it. We're not doing that in the service. And I just sit there looking at him, not really sure what to say. I'll spare you the details. Suffice to say that after a very brief discussion, we ultimately cut both the video and the song from the service and replaced it with a familiar worship song. An entire creative arts package that involved weeks of work from over a dozen artists uh, and volunteers was never used in a service. It hurt deeply. Not because something I was excited about didn't make its way to the service and and come to life like I'd hoped, but because I believed I was robbed of the chance to see God use what he had inspired me and so many others to create. It hurt because I felt betrayed. I was angry because that moment made me feel like giving up. Like, what's the point of working hard if it ultimately doesn't matter and just gets thrown away at the last minute? Why even try? Now, later that week, the person who was speaking took me and a coworker out to lunch. We were expecting him to apologize. Instead, what we received was a 20 minute rationalization explaining and defending his decision. No apology, no assurance that it wouldn't happen exactly the same way again, not even an opportunity for us to explain why we were hurting and frustrated. And my coworker and I left lunch that day more hurt, more angry, and more frustrated than we had been when we got there. Fast forward 10 plus years later, me alone in my office a few Saturdays ago, tears of anger welling up in my eyes, heart beating out of my chest, hands squeezed into fists, shoulders tight, jaw clenched, trying to squeeze precious seconds out of a creative moment for a service just hours away. Why was I so upset? It had very little to do with what was actually happening in that moment and more to do with unresolved anger, bitterness, and frustration from a situation that happened somewhere else with someone else more than a decade before. That's the power that unresolved anger can have in our lives, friends. I hadn't dealt with that yet. I had not processed those moments and the feelings associated with that in a healthy way. I had only just pushed them to the side in hopes that I wouldn't need to deal with them again. But it was clear that day, as I used every ounce of energy I had just trying not to explode, that I still have some work to do in this area. And I wonder if maybe you do too. Friends, the forces of guilt and anger can wreak havoc In our hearts and lives. They color our every interaction, cause chaos in our relationships, and can even dictate our actions and behaviors. So what can we do to start on the journey towards spiritual and emotional health? So let's shift right now. Let's get really practical about some first steps that we can take to begin this long process of healing our hearts. Looking at guilt, The reason it has so much power over us is because it is hidden. Our guilt is secret. Guilt hides in the dark corners of our heart. Our friends and family usually don't know about it. That thing that we're feeling guilty about, we don't talk about it. We avoid it. The guilt and shame that invades our hearts tells us to stay quiet, to keep the root of our feelings in the dark, lest the world find out who and what we truly are. But my friends, i got to tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. Look at the words of Andy Stanley from the book. He reminds us that secrets lose their power when exposed to light. Our secrets The hidden shame we keep locked away, those awful things we've said and done that we keep hidden in the shadows of our hearts. They lose their power when exposed to the light of Jesus Christ and the grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness we find in him. And the first step in finding that is confession. Now I know that for many of us, as soon as I say that word, uh, there's a specific connotation. That it takes, or maybe there's even some baggage attached to that for you. So I want to be really clear here. You need to confess your sins to God. Okay? To God. Not to me, not to Dwayne or Mike or Paul or any other minister. I mean, the truth is, we're available to you. Like, if you need us to walk down that road with you, we're here. We'd be happy to do that. But according to the Bible, A priest or pastor is not a required part of the confession process in the eyes of God. Look with me at 1 John 1.9. It says this, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive. We have to start by going before God in earnest prayer, and acknowledging our sin and asking him for his forgiveness. But as I said before, this is just step one. It doesn't end there. Because in most cases, God is not the party we've wronged. I mean, he's not at least the only party we've wronged, right? Someone else has been hurt, angered, upset, injured, etc. by what we said or did. Another person, another relationship is involved. And God values relationships and considers restoration a priority. So after we confess to God, we must also confess to the offended party. Confession is two parts. First to God, then to the offended parties. And we see this beautifully illustrated in James 5. Check it out. It's in the screen and in your notes. It says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So there's part one, confession to God, right? Here comes part two. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. This kind of confession has the power to break the cycle of sin in our lives. If you start confessing your sins to people that you've sinned against, odds are, you're not going to go back and commit those same sins again. If you force yourself to confess to your manager that you inflated your sales numbers last quarter, assuming that you get to keep your job, you probably aren't going to inflate them again. If you muster up the courage to confess to a friend that you've revealed to somebody something that they shared with you in confidence, chances are, you'll never do that again. Not if it means having to confess again. See, guilty people are usually repeat offenders. And as long as you're carrying a secret, as long as you're trying to ease your conscience by only telling God how sorry you are, you're setting yourself up to repeat the past. However, confession, the way God designed confession to be applied, it breaks the cycle of sin and guilt. The reason you still feel guilty about the things in your past is because they're unresolved. Your burden of guilt won't be lifted until you confess to the offended party. Only then will you be free from the secrets that have formed walls between you and the people you love most. And let me say this. The people that you've hurt, they need us to do this as well. It's not just about us. For someone else out there, you may hold the last piece to a puzzle they've been trying to complete for a very long time. Now, to be clear, the confession of sins is not the way that we earn forgiveness, it's just the way that we force our egos into a posture where we can receive forgiveness. Friends, the truth is, I am a mighty sinner. But by the grace of God, shame is optional. I will make mistakes. I will blow it. I will fall short again and again. But if I wasn't screwing things up, I wouldn't need God. The very grace of God is the knowledge that in my imperfection, I am welcomed and accepted and loved and forgiven. And we can be confident in that knowledge as we begin to develop the habit of confessing to God and to each other. So, those are some first steps we can take as we battle guilt. But what about anger? How do we start to address that? Well, let's go to the Bible for those answers. Look with me, if you would, at Ephesians 4:31 on the screen. Get rid of all bitterness rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. I wonder if you noticed the word all in that verse? Uh, Paul lists every relational wedge he can think of, and then just in case he forgot one, he throws in all forms of malice, right? Now, malice is just like general ill will towards somebody else. Uh, Paul covers all the bases, Whatever negative emotion you're feeling, uh, whatever you're harboring, regardless of who it's against or why, get rid of it. Ew. Like, that doesn't even make sense. How can I get rid of an emotion? I look at that and I think, there's no way. Like, that is out of my control. I'm just responding to the people in the world around me. You're crazy. Get rid of that stuff. But what did Paul know that I don't know? Like, what moved him to speak so authoritatively to people whose circumstances he was so unfamiliar with? Well, the answer is found in the very next verse. Check it out. Verse 32. Instead, be kind to each other. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. See, the Apostle Paul says we are to show kindness. Kindness. And compassion to others fueled by an attitude of forgiveness we are to extend an attitude of forgiveness that mirrors the kind God extended to each of us in Christ do you see that phrase just as in this verse I want to encourage you circle that underline it draw arrows to it cut it out and staple it to your forehead whatever you got to do It carries more significance than we will ever understand. Just as is what gave Paul the confidence to call people he barely knew to a standard of behavior that most of us would consider unrealistic. But more importantly, just as is the key to allowing God to rid our hearts of the bitterness and resentment that have the potential to reach their destructive tentacles into every important relationship we have. Just as redefines and upgrades the very meaning of forgiveness. Friends, the remedy for our anger is forgiveness. And I know what you're thinking. Because I'm thinking it too. Easier said than done, right? Yeah, I know. Remember, I said this was a weak spot for me too. Um, I am by no means an expert at this. But with your grace, I would like for us to explore this together as fellow strugglers. Can we do that? Yes. Great, thank you. Well, if you're not going to speak, I'll do it for you. God tells us that in order to slay our anger... We have to develop patterns of forgiveness. Uh, Essentially, there are four phases to complete the cycle of forgiveness. I hesitate to call them steps. They're more like processes. Okay? Uh, The first one is this. Identify who you're angry with. Duh. Yeah, I know. It sounds like an easy one. But we have to do this. Forgiveness is more than just a decision to move on with your life and forget the past. Trying to forget a debt isn't the same as canceling it. So I recommend that you make a list of the people who have mistreated or taken advantage of you. Go as far back as you like, but don't assume that you've forgiven a person just because you've moved on, okay? Who do you hope to never see again? Who do you find yourself having imaginary conversations with or arguments with, as the case may be? Who would you like to pay back if you thought you could get away with it? Who do you secretly desire to fail? Go ahead, poke around every area of your life. Family, friends, exes, deceased parents, coworkers, coaches, bosses. Not gonna be the most fun Friday night you've ever had, uh, but it's extremely important. This is an opportunity to purge your heart of the junk that has been hindering the relationships you value most. It's worth it. Make the effort and make the list. Number two. Determine what they owe you. Determine what they owe you. Now, this is a piece that gets skipped a lot. Um, As a result, if we forgive, we forgive generally, but not specifically. And I would say that we must determine exactly what we believe is owed to us by those who have hurt us. You know what the person that hurt you did, but what exactly did they take? Until you know the answer to that question, I would challenge you in saying that you are not ready to forgive. Until you know the answer to that question, you may even go through the motions of forgiveness but feel no freedom. General forgiveness can't heal specific hurts. It is important that you pinpoint what was taken from you. What do the people on your list owe you? An apology? Money, time, a marriage, a family, a job, a reputation, an opportunity, a promotion, a chapter of your life. Whatever it is, be specific. You cannot cancel a debt that you have not clearly identified. Which brings us to number three, cancel the debt. After identifying exactly what was taken, you must then cancel the debt. That means deciding that the offending party doesn't owe you anything anymore. Remember those two words from Ephesians? Just as? Just as Christ canceled your sin debt on the cross, so you and I must cancel the debts that others have incurred against us. If we hold out, waiting to be paid back for the wrongs done to us, uh, we will be waiting a very, 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 very repeating long time. uh, And ultimately, we will be the ones who pay. If, on the other hand, we cancel the debts owed to us, we will be set free. Friends, God didn't wait for us to get everything squared away before he sent Jesus. He didn't wait until we'd settled our debts. Read with me from uh, Colossians 2, which says this. When you were spiritually dead because of your sins, you were in the red. You were in debt. God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the debt, which listed all the rules we failed to follow, and he nailed it to the cross. God canceled our debts through Jesus' death on the cross. And in his great wisdom and mercy, he gives us opportunities to forgive the debts against us through the power of the Holy Spirit alive within us. Once you've gone through that hard work of canceling the debt, you move on to the next piece, number four. Dismiss the case. This final process, it centers on a daily decision not to reopen your case. What makes this so difficult is that our feelings don't always follow our decision to forgive. Besides, forgiving someone doesn't mean that we forget what happened, right? Our memories are still there. If we truly could forgive and forget, this would be exponentially easier. But in most cases, no sooner have we forgiven than something happens to remind us of the offense all over again. And when our memories are triggered, the old feelings come flooding back. Am I right? And when memories of those past hurts flood your mind, I want to encourage you. Go ahead and face them. Allow yourself to remember that incident. It's even okay to feel the emotions that those memories elicit. But Instead of reopening the case against your offender, take this opportunity to restate your decision. He or she doesn't owe me anymore. He or she doesn't owe me anymore. And just repeat that. And then thank your heavenly father for the strength and grace he's given you to forgive. Do not accept the lie that you haven't forgiven. Focus on the truth that this debt has been canceled. Friends, feelings will come and go. But the decision that you've made remains. And in time, if you cling to the fact that this individual doesn't owe you anymore, your feelings will change too. The day will come when you'll be able to respond to your offender in light of where he or she is in relationship to Christ rather than in light of how that person's treated you. In the shadow of my hurt, Forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. And after you've experienced the true grace of God, we become more compassionate. In Luke chapter 7, uh, we read an account of a time when Jesus was eating dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Uh, A woman with a bad reputation heard that Jesus was going to be going there. So she goes to Simon's house, and she anoints Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And the power of that moment, it brings her to weep, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and the hair on her head. And Jesus, knowing what Simon was thinking, he tells Simon a story. A story about a man who loaned money to two different people. He gave one of them 500 pieces of silver and the other 50 pieces of silver. And after a period of time, neither of these people were able to repay that debt. And so the man forgave them their debts. And then Jesus asked Simon, who do you think was more grateful? And Simon, of course, responds, well, the one who had a larger debt forgiven. Jesus says, yeah, you got it. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He takes it a step further and applies his story like this in verses 47 and 48. I tell you. Her sins, referring to the woman, and they are many, have been forgiven. And so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Friends, the outpouring of love that she showed to Jesus Was out of an overflow of gratitude for the forgiveness she'd received from God. She was a mighty sinner, but she had been forgiven in a mighty way. And that shined through her actions at the feet of Jesus. I can't speak for you, friends, but like the woman at Jesus' feet, I know that I am one who has been forgiven much. And I am a mighty sinner. But God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness are new for me every day. And when I think of all that I've been forgiven for, how can I not offer a piece of that forgiveness to someone else? I'm gonna ask if you would pray with me. God, we come before you today humbly asking for your help as we battle against these enemies of our hearts. These feelings of guilt and anger consume us sometimes. But God, we want to take the gift of your divine forgiveness. Father, we recognize that just as you have forgiven us much, Lord, we want to be forgivers of others. But we need your help God, we can't do it without your strength, your mercy, and your amazing grace. Thank you, God, for loving us today exactly as we are. We praise you and we say it in your name.